0: Well, it's not surprising to you that I would ask you once again to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're still there in Mark chapter 10. And last week, in response to the walking away of the rich young ruler, as he rejects Jesus Christ, he rejects the offer and terms of the gospel. And upon his walking away, Peter, as he so often does, speaks on behalf of the twelve And he speaks with this confident assertion. In light of the fact that this rich ruler was unwilling to pay the price to follow Jesus and walked away, Peter says, behold, we have left everything and followed you. In contrast to this man, Lord, who was not willing to pay the price to follow you, we have been willing. We have left everything and followed you. The implied question there is, Lord, what's in it for us? Our Lord's response is very gracious. He answers essentially saying, no one who has been caused to lose the love and affection of family members, father, mother, brothers and sisters, who will not have it made up to him or her many times over, in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters and mothers to replace those that they have lost. There's no one who has forfeited property, houses or farms, who have been disenfranchised because of their commitment to Christ, for whom Jesus will not make it up to them somehow in this life. And so we notice that there are, we might say, quantitative rewards for following Jesus in this life. But then I called attention to what we might call the qualitative rewards of following Jesus. No matter what you are caused to give up, materially or familially, would you trade for the life you have in Jesus Christ for anything? Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. You have eternal salvation. All is well with your soul. You need not fear death. You have the peace of God. You have contentment. You have been restored to live out the purpose you've been created by God to live, a life in fellowship with God. You wouldn't trade that for anything. And so whatever you might lose quantitatively, the qualitative life that Jesus gives is not worth trading for anything. But then Jesus says that beyond all of that earthly reimbursement, which he will give for the losses suffered by his people, The God of grace promises that in the age to come, which in my understanding is ushered in at the return of Jesus, which is the age of resurrection. In the age to come, you will have eternal life, endless life in which we are told in Revelation 21, there will be no more mourning, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. That's the promise of reward for following him. But then Jesus concludes his response to Peter with these somewhat enigmatic and and sobering words. But he says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And I tried to unpack to you what he might mean by those words. But friends, if that was a sobering thought for the apostles to ponder, what follows is even more sobering. Because Jesus goes on to give yet another prediction of his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. So our text for this morning is verses 32 to 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. Those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. First thing I want us to see from this passage, which I'm calling Jesus gives another prediction of his passion. Consider the setting of the prediction, the setting of the prediction. They're going up to Jerusalem. Now, what is the time frame here? Jesus is getting near the end of his life. His original ministry in southern Judea is over with. The ministry he had in the northern kingdom of Galilee is behind him. What we call the retirement ministry, where he didn't retire from ministry, but he focused on training the disciples, that is now over. The later Judean ministry, not recorded by Mark, but in Luke and John, that's finished. Mark 10 indicates his ministry in the region of Perea, Jesus is in the last week of his life. He has but one more week to live on planet Earth. Basically, from here on out to the rest of the, the gospel encompasses one week. Jesus is making, jer- making his last journey to Jerusalem. That's so far as the time of the setting. How about the place? Well, they're going to Jerusalem, and it says they go up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's of high elevation, so wherever you are, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Why was he headed for Jerusalem? There was a necessity for Jesus' life to end in Jerusalem. One of the reasons is stated in Luke 13, 33, which I'll read to you. Jesus says, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Many previous prophets had been tried by the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, and came to an end there in Jerusalem. And it must be so for the greatest prophet, Jesus. But I suggest there's another reason why he has to go up to Jerusalem and why he needs to end his life in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the location of the Jewish temple. And the temple was the place of sacrifice. And it was the time of the Passover feast. The sacrifice that would end all sacrifices was about to be made and it needed to be made in Jerusalem, the place of the temple, the place of sacrifice. Christ, our Passover, as Paul calls him, is about to be sacrificed for us. And so Jerusalem would become the womb that would give birth to the church, as I understand it, the new Israel of God, and from which place that church would fan out to the ends of the earth. But not only do we see the time and the place so far as the setting but but I want you to notice the atmosphere here as Jesus and his followers are headed for Jerusalem. Mark here adds something that no other gospel includes. He says and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. Mark obviously wants his readers to know more than just the facts of what was happening. He wants us to feel something of the atmosphere as Jesus is making this final trip to Jerusalem. One commentator puts it vividly, and I think accurately, when he says this, Jesus in advance, all the rest following at a respectful distance. The astonishment of the twelve and the fear of others were not due to the fact that Jesus had, against their wish, chosen to go to Jerusalem in spite of apprehended danger. These feelings must have been awakened by the manner of Jesus as one laboring under strong emotion. Only so can we account for the fear of the crowd who are not like the twelve acquainted with Christ's forebodings of, of death. Memory and expectation were both active at that moment in Jesus, producing together a high-strung state of mind. Perea, John's baptism in the Jordan at the beginning, Jerusalem, the priests, the cross at the end. Filled with the varied feelings, excited by these sacred recollections and tragic anticipations, he walks alone by preference, step and gesture, revealing what is working within and inspiring awe, close quote. You see, it was traditional for the rabbi to walk in front of his disciples. But that doesn't seem to be all that Mark is saying here. Mark wants us to to sense something of the manner in Jesus that was evoking this this ominous sense of foreboding. There was a a solemnity about Jesus. There was a, a resoluteness in his countenance and in his step Indicating his inflexible determination to carry out the mission the father had given him. The scene here reflects the words of Luke 9:51, Which says when the days were approaching for his ascension. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. It also reflects the words put in the mouth of the Messiah. In Isaiah 50 verse 7. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. That's what they were seeing. They were seeing this resolution in the countenance and demeanor of Jesus that was amazing to some, fearful for others, because he was setting his face like a flint to go to that place of the appointment by his father. So the atmosphere is thick with apprehension fear of the unknown, anxiety for the disciples, and it was all evoked by this unusually resolute, somber demeanor that they saw in Jesus. So much for the setting of the prediction, its time, its place, the atmosphere. Consider the recipients of of the prediction. To whom was this prediction made? Um, The second half of verse 32 says, and again, he took the 12 aside, And began to tell them what was going to happen to him. See, there was a larger crowd, but he took the 12 aside and he said these words, he gave this prediction to them. Consider their privileged position. Now, throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark, and really in in any gospel, there are concentric circles of people that are always surrounding Jesus, right? On the outer circle, you have the, the multitudes, that undefined group of people who came to hear him teach. And to receive his touch, you have the multitudes. Then you have a group often styled the disciples. You know, the word disciple, Greek mathetes, actually means a learner. It's from the verb monthano, from which we get mathematics. But a disciple is a learner. And so you have not just the multitude, but those called disciples. Some were temporary disciples they followed him for a while then they would leave him others were more permanent disciples but then in the inside of these concentric circles you have the 12 you have the apostles why were they there well according to mark 3:14 jesus chose them that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach these 12 would become the foundation stones of the church. Remember Ephesians 2:20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that would be New Testament prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. They would be the foundation stones of the new covenant community, the church. They would be the early preachers of the gospel. They would be the early church planters. They would establish his church on the earth. They would be the ones who would receive inspiration to write the New Testament epistles. Well, because of their destined position of privilege, these sent ones were given by Jesus special attention, special instruction, special training, and here he recognizes that they need special preparation. Of all people, they need to be braced and prepared for what was coming down within a week's time. And so he again took the 12 aside and began to tell them. It was not for general public consumption. This is only for that band of 12. I want you to note what I'm calling their previous preparation. According to Mark, this is the third time that Jesus has told them plainly what's going to happen. Back in 831, he had said very similar words and he began to teach them, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. What was the response? Peter takes Jesus aside and says, oh, no, Lord, this can't happen to you. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. What we have is a chapter later in chapter nine in verse 31, Jesus again predicts what's going to happen for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he has been killed he will rise 3 days later what was their response then but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him now the question is will they get it this third time you see the apostles can't seem to reconcile in their minds what Jesus is saying about his suffering and death. They can't reconcile that with their own notions of messianic kingdom and glory. It just didn't fit. But note, again, their emotional condition. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. They were unprepared for what was coming. They were amazed. They didn't understand Jesus' resolve. Even after he was taken and and captured, they would run away in fear. They would huddle in fear in the upper room. Remember the two men on the road to Emmaus? They were downcast, thinking their hopes had been dashed. They're not getting it. But lastly, I spent a little more time here the substance of the prediction. We've seen the setting of this prediction. We've seen the time. It's near the end of Jesus' ministry. He's going up to Jerusalem. The atmosphere is tense with the anticipation, confusion, anxiety. The recipients of the prediction, their privileged position, and um, their previous preparation, their emotional condition. But now let's focus on the prediction itself. First of all, the person who's going to endure this suffering, look at verse 33, saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Who is the one who will suffer? He calls himself the son of man. And as you know, perhaps, or remember that this was the most often- used designation of Jesus for himself. When he referred to himself, most often he referred to himself as the son of man. And it's kind of a paradoxical description of himself because on the one hand, son of man certainly points to his humanity. I was born of a a person. I was born of a human being. I share in your humanity. So son of man designates his humanity, his shared humanity with us. But as you might remember, the the designation son of man is used in a glorious way in Daniel's prophecy. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, we read Daniel saying, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Wait a minute, who is this son of man? On the one hand, he's a a man. He's He shares in our humanity. On the other hand, he is this glorious, majestic king who has an everlasting kingdom. How do we reconcile these? Well, friends, this is the divine genius of the gospel, that God becomes man while not ceasing to be God. The kingdom of God is going to conquer by suffering. The power of God is going to come by apparent weakness. The king is going to gain his throne by humiliation. And glory is going to come through sacrifice. Who is the son of man? He's just a man, but he's the glorious God-man. He's the majestic king. So who is appointed for this suffering? The son of man, who is also the son of God. He is the Lord of glory, Stoop to become a man. But now consider the persons who will inflict this suffering upon him. They, he will be given over. Well, let's see. Um, First, it says he's delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. That's the Jewish high court. That's the Sanhedrin. They needed to try Jesus because he had become a, a major figure on the landscape of Judaism. And so he's going to be brought before the highest court. We would say the Supreme Court of the land, and they will condemn him to death for blasphemy, claiming to be God, but in reality, there's another motive. But that Jewish Sanhedrin represented the entire nation, and so it implicates the entire nation in Jesus' conviction and death. So in one sense, we could say the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. The Jews killed Jesus. Ah, but if that sounds anti-Semitic, and of course, in our day, people are hypersensitive to anti-Semitism. If that sounds anti-Semitic, that the Jews killed Jesus, we need to learn the rest of the story. Those Jews, it says, will hand him over to the Gentiles. You see, the Jews were deprived of power to execute capital punishment, right? Right. Under the Roman authority, they could not execute people. And so they turned Jesus over with a capital sentence to the Roman government under Pontius Pilate. And it's the Romans who execute the sentence, which is the execution of Jesus. In fact, we have a perversely ironic statement that speaks volumes about the condition of the entire human race. In Luke 23:12, we read, Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Very interesting, very profound. Herod representing, in some sense, the religious community. Pilate representing the Gentile Roman civil government. And that day, those who were enemies linked arms and became friends. That makes a profound statement about the human race if there is one thing that unites all people who are fallen in Adam, it is this, their shared enmity toward God and toward his Christ. So appropriately, the instruments that God appointed for the execution of his son are both the Jews and the Gentiles. Why? Because Jews and Gentiles represented the entirety of humanity, and it's the entire world that is under sin and under the wrath of God. Isn't that what Paul presents in the first few chapters of Romans? Where he first begins with the heathen, those who are outside of the realm of special revelation, the Gentiles who know God through creation, but they suppress the truth they know through creation and conscience. Then he turns his guns on his fellow Jews, and you know you may judge them, but you do the same thing. You're hypocrites, and he gets to the end. And he makes these summary statements, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so who are the ones who inflicted this punishment upon Jesus? The Jews only? No, the Jews and the Gentiles. And what was the nature of the suffering that Jesus endured? First of all, there is deceitful treachery. It says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. Who delivered him? One of his own? One of the twelve? One of the band of men chosen to be with him and was with him for three years? You know it echoes the language of the messianic Psalms, Psalm 41 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In the language of Psalm 55, beginning at verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng, he was betrayed by a close friend, Judas. It's a painful experience to be betrayed by a close friend, isn't it? Has it happened to you? People who have gone through a divorce, it's painful, they say, more painful than death, because somebody who knows you intimately has rejected you. We can speak of those who have suffered abuse as children, physical, verbal, sexual abuse, often by those who should have been their protectors, who should have been their caretakers, and yet violated them. Well, I say to all who have been betrayed by someone close, you have the sympathy of a savior who for three years, he knew he was going to be betrayed by that man, but he loved him, And treated him the same as he treated the other 11. If you've been betrayed, and you've been hurt, wounded by a close friend. You have a sympathetic savior with Jesus. He understands. But not only was there deceitful treachery, but there is unjust condemnation. It says, and they will condemn him to death. As you know, the, the, the whole trial was a travesty of justice. It was a frame up. They brought in false witnesses to accuse him, but the real motive, we're told, they were jealous of Jesus. They were power-hungry for control over the crowds, and Jesus was just becoming too popular, and it was out of their jealousy that they brought him to trial. There's the verbal and physical humiliation there in verse 34. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. This speaks of what was done to him by the Roman authorities. They mocked him, they spit at him in contempt and derision, they scourged him, they whipped him to the point of near death, and then ultimately they killed him by crucifixion. They tortured him. You know, I've been made to think uh, uh, quite a bit about torture because every day I get more than one report of what's happening in Myanmar. And not only are they killing people, but... They're arresting them, and then we're often told they torture them before they kill them. And I have to think to myself, how deep is the depravity in the human heart that they can enjoy torture? Even when you see people torturing animals, and sometimes if that shows up, you better be on the alert for that person. There's something really perverse about torturing animals, I remember reading in a Puritan book and Puritan was saying, yeah, there's, isn't there enough suffering in the world that we have to use worms for bait and fishing? And I thought, oh my, I'm a fisherman. Uh, I still use live bait, but I do think about that Puritan, you know, when I bait my hook with a worm or a minnow or something, but, but even when you inflict pain needlessly on a, on a, on an animal, there's something wrong. But to want to torture, to take delight in torturing a human being made in the image of God, how deep is the depravity in the hearts of men? But to do the same, not to a mere man, but to the son of man, to the the God-man, the Lord of glory, it's got to be the height of depravity and degeneration and arrogance and hostility. Words cannot convey the depth of hatred in the hearts of men for God and we are guilty of the same. But I think this gives us a picture of it when you see what the Son of God was subjected to by these representative men. We are capable of the same. And then there was the killing. They will kill him. They will deprive him of his mortal life. And in Jesus' case, they suffocated the breath out of him by the common and cruel Roman means of execution, which was the cross. But it doesn't end there, thankfully. As he prepares, he says he's going to suffer these things. But then he adds, and three days later, he will rise again. Consider the ultimate purpose of the suffering. The suffering of Jesus was not an end in itself. It was part of a bigger complex of events. This which was sorrowful would end in glorious joy. Death would result in life because three days later, Jesus would be raised from the dead by the Father, by the Holy Spirit. And he said he himself will raise himself from the dead. All members of the Trinity were involved in the raising of Jesus from the dead. You see, the purpose of his death would ensure his rising out of death in order for him to defeat death. Jesus didn't die as some hapless, helpless victim of of, uh, irresistible power. He himself said in John 10, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He voluntarily gave his life up as a substitute sacrifice for the multitude of people who would put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. It was the plan of God from eternity past. And by raising him from the dead, God was giving his receipt for the payment for sins that Jesus had made. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. I have paid for all the sins of everyone who will ever trust in me. And he died. And when God raised him from the dead, God was saying from heaven, this is the receipt. I've received payment in full for all the sins of my people. And I've accepted that as payment. So you don't have to pay for one of your sins Because by the resurrection, God affirmed the fact that he has accepted Jesus' payment in your place. He died for you. He paid the price for you. But, you know, all of that wasn't given to them at this time. Jesus was just laying out the facts. All the interpretation of his death and resurrection wasn't given to them at this time. And the question is, did they get it? They didn't get it the first time. They didn't get it the second time. Did they get it the third time Jesus is predicting? I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. Did they get it this time? Well, our answer is not here in Mark, but it is in, in Luke 18, where he, Luke repeats the same scenario, beginning at verse 31, where he says, and he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, etc.'" Verse 34, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. Third time around, did they get it? No, they didn't get it. Not yet, not yet. But the day would come when the light of understanding would break upon them. And all 11 of these men, would go to their deaths believing these events and God's interpretation of these events. No, they didn't go to their deaths simply believing these things. They went to their deaths because they believed these things and proclaimed this gospel to others. No, they didn't get it yet, but they will get it and they will lay down their lives. Peter being crucified upside down because he believed what Jesus said and what happened. But that understanding wouldn't come until the Spirit would come in his Pentecostal fullness and empower them. Well, friends, that's the text. What food can we gather from this for our needy, hungry souls this morning? First of all, I would say appreciate the great patience of our Lord with his slow of heart, ignorant disciples. Three times he sets it before them plainly. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. Do you see something of the patience of Jesus and the forbearance of Jesus with kind of hard headed, hard hearted men? Well, how about you? Do you have need of patience? Some of you moms, do you need patience with your kids because you need to tell them again and again and again and again the same thing? Well, You have an example in Jesus, and you have grace from Jesus for the patience you need with your kids. Some of you have struggles being patient with your spouse. I've told him so many times, I've told her, I can't, I've told her so many times, but he doesn't get it. Let me blame the husband. He's usually the, or the problem. He doesn't get it. You need patience with your husband. Jesus is an example of patience, and he also has grace to give you how about some brother or sister in Christ in the church or outside of the church? I can't understand why they don't see it exactly the way I see it. And you have a hard time being patient with somebody who doesn't see it exactly the way you see it, even though you may not see it correctly every time. You need patience with some of your brothers and sisters, maybe those who are opposite you in temperament. Jesus is an example And there's grace in Jesus to be patient with one another as we are called to be. And ask, how patient has he been with you? Extend that patience to others. Here's another application. Appreciate the great love of our Lord Jesus Christ as seen in his resolute determination to carry out his mission. So visibly was his solemn resolve seen in his countenance and in his demeanor and his steps that it evoked astonishment from his followers. What was behind that resolution? We can say it was love for God, his Father, and determination to obey the will of his Father. Back in John 12, Jesus says at one point, late in his ministry, Now is my soul troubled. He's anticipating Jerusalem. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It was love for his father that steel Jesus' resolve to go to the cross. It was his father's will that he do that. That's why he was sent. But friends, there was another reason that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem because the eternal salvation of a whole people depended on his obedience. Yes, he had come to do his father's will. John 6, 38 says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But you know what the very next verse says? And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. What steeled his resolve? What gave him that flint-like determination? Love for his father, yes, but love for you and me. If you're a believer because our eternal salvation hung in the balance with his obedience to that commission and we need to bow in humble gratitude for the amazing love that would by which he would make himself subject to betrayal and injustice and mocking and scourging and agonizing death and becoming sin for us here's an, uh, another application I think is valid We need to imitate the example of our Lord's resolute obedience in our lives. Jesus has this God-given goal to go to the cross and to die for his people and to be raised. That was his whole purpose in coming. Well, God has given us a goal in life. What is it? Paul says, I press on toward the goal of the high, uh, the, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is our goal, having been redeemed? Our goal is sanctification. Our goal is to be like Christ, isn't it? Paul says that I may know him, the fellowship of sufferings, the power of his resurrection. It is to know Christ and to be conformed more into the image of Christ. Is there anything of determination in you that was in Christ in your striving after holiness? The imagery he uses is an athletic imagery. It's a sprinter sprinting for the tape. I press on toward the goal. I remember vividly high school track, and we had a a sprinter and in a hundred yard dash. This man was so determined to win. I remember it was a day of cinder track, and he was so determined he just lunged for the tape in a county meet and he landed in the cinders and he had cinders in his in his in his flesh. He was so determined to win. Is there anything of that striving after holiness that imitates Jesus? Have you recently been defeated in an area of your most besetting sin? My brother, my sister, don't curl up in a ball of self pity. Don't give up in despair. Confess your sin. Apply the forgiveness that is in Jesus. And take to heart the words of Bunyan's Pilgrim from Micah 6 8, where it says in Pilgrim's Progress, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is light to me. Have you been half-hearted and lackadaisical in your pursuit of God and his word and in prayer? Are those things trailing off in your life? So often we need to say, Lord, revive me according to your word. I've grown dull. I've grown stale. I've lost my motivation. I'm just going through the motions. We need that often, don't we? In the language of Psalm 1, revive me, Lord. Revive my hunger for your word. Revive my zeal for prayer and meditation. Have you been timid or cowardly in your witness to others like I was this week? I went to AutoZone to have a little help done on my car, and they often have people there that will help you. And one man wasn't an employee there, but he said, I've been a mechanic for 35 years. He came out and helped me. And this guy had tattoos on his tattoos He had chains dangling and clanging on the on the the front of my car. A man who needed Jesus. I didn't have any tracks. And I said nothing to him about Christ. He was a man who needed Christ. Was he a little intimidating? Yeah, but it was my cowardice. And I don't want to be a coward like that. I want to have the resolve to tell the gospel. Even as Jesus walks straight into the jaws of mocking and spitting and shame and scourging and death, we need more of the resolution that our Lord showed in going to the cross. And then finally, let me say to unbelievers, if you're here as an unbeliever, the path that Jesus followed is the path you need to follow as well. You notice there was a sequence. What came first? Mocking, spitting, scourging, death. Came first, then the resurrection. He was humbled, humiliated, then he was exalted. Friends, that's the path of discipleship. Before you can come to eternal life and exaltation to glory, you must go through a valley of humiliation. You must come to see yourself as a sinner who has violated God, who've gone your own way. Not living for the God who made you, but living for yourself, living for your own glory and praise, living according to your own rules. You're a rebel against God and you need to be humbled and crushed with a weight of sin and guilt and the sense of punishment that you face. But when you do, when you come to God through Jesus Christ and ask for mercy and forgiveness, Here's God's heart towards you. Psalm 51, 17, the penitent David, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Isaiah 57, 15, I, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, dwell in a high and whole and exalted place and also with the contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Humble yourself as a needy sinner before God. And he will raise you up, forgive you of your raise you up to the heights of heaven and his glory, and one day you will live with him and all the other saints on a renovated earth. But humiliation, humility must precede exaltation and salvation. Let's pray. Then we're going to sing a wonderful new hymn. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Help us now to celebrate that and rejoice in it as we partake of the emblems of your death. In Jesus' name.